out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the guitarist Craig Gannon, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Yes, guitarist with the likes of the Smiths, the Bluebells, Aztec Camera, Adult Net, Morrissey, Terry Hall and much, much more. This is the interview and after a long and interesting chat, we got down to the very exciting subject of the early formative years and uh, yes, when it all began, the musical journey. This is... Craig's response. And also, just to say, oh, it's a bit of a spoiler. I won't spoil it. You'll have to listen to the end bit. His latest musical adventure. But anyway, there you go. You're just going to have to wait, won't you? Anyway, Craig, it's over to you. Yeah, I'm sure it'll... I think it'll... I've been watching Top of the Pops early on. Um, the first sort of musical background I remember I had was uh, things like, the, you know, the glam era. Yes. I mean, I was born in 66, so I think... We had the sort of, I don't know if it's called bubble cop, bubble, sort of bubble, bubble pop, bubble poppy pop. glam, so, you know, bubble gum sort of glam yes. era, which was the sweets and the Mark Boland show around, uh, I mean, Mark, it was programs yes. like Runaway and, you know, all that around that time. Uh, Bay City Rollers, things like that. I'm, I'm not saying I was into this stuff, but that was the sort of first, uh, first time I remember being around music, really. Uh, it didn't do anything for me, so I suppose the next thing then was, um, I suppose, the punk era when I really started listening to, to music, getting into The Clash and The Stranglers. Yes. I mean, we'd always, we'd sort of had records around the house, sort of sound, film soundtracks, and um, Beatles I was aware of, uh, you know, the, the sort of famous music around. But it was, I suppose, what made me start getting interested in the guitar, playing guitar, was uh, the punk era. Right. And I was really, you know, I was really young. I was sort of about 10 years old, I think, when they started coming around, maybe 11 years old. So I think probably just after that. Yes. Uh, you know, it was, it was like the, the punk stuff that I liked was the melodic stuff, really, and people that could play rather than the bands that couldn't play. So I was into things like The Clash and Stranglers, like I say. Mm. Um, and I didn't know, didn't know too much about anything at that age about music. So, and were uh, your were your parents musical at all? No, not not at all, not one bit. They're really artistic. They're all and my brother as well. The great artist, um, but nothing nothing musical at all. My brother was a little bit. He was he used to play bass, but my parents would uh, you know they'd never have uh, an instrument in the house at all. So. I was the first one, really. Yes. Did you have to persuade them and say, look, this is a really good idea. Could you buy me a guitar? I can't remember having to sort of twist their arm, really. Um, I probably did at the time because I was always into fads, you know. Before that, I think it was skateboarding. And then before that, it was, you know, kind of the latest sort of chopper bike. And But I think I think they, tr- they just knew I was so serious about, you know, wanting to learn the guitar. And, None of us ever thought I could make a career out of it. It was a, it was a hobby, really. So when you were saying soundtracks, what were the kind of what were the kind of the, the soundtracks that you know you particularly sort of crept into your DNA? Well, I think the first one I can remember that was around the house, and I still don't understand why. 
because I can't imagine my mum and dad liking it, but it was the soundtrack for Enter the Dragon, you know, the Bruce Lee film. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> which was, um, I think, was that 73, 74, something like that. So I remember that was in the house, and I remember there were a lot of those Top of the Pops records around. Remember? Yes, I love so them. With, you know, with the lady on the front, and then... Yes, classy, um, classy covers. covers. on the inside, you know, it's pretty much music now. And... So it was that type of thing, really. I remember there was some Burt Bacharach things around. Um, Casino Royale, I think, was one of them. So I was really, you know, I was uh, exposed to, to soundtracks really yes. early on. Cause my, and, cause like my... I say, I can't figure out why, really, because my mum and dad don't listen to them at all now. That's weird, isn't it? And did you have any yeah. brothers, or older brothers or sisters who kind of made any kind of impact? Um, not until I've, I'd made a good start with the guitar um my brother had always loved music he's, he's a couple of years older than me so he'd he'd sort of in fact he was probably into punk just before i was and uh i don't you know we were both at school at that time so we couldn't go out buying records or anything but because you'd have your mates around or you'd go around to your mates we'd listen to things that they had you know some of them, some of them had probably robbed records yes um, so it's, um, you know, he'd always be a little bit of a trendsetter for me. He'd get into Echo and the Bunnymen later on. So I'd hear them and I'd get into those. Uh, same with the monochrome set. And, and that's what happened with the Stranglers, really. He used to love the Stranglers. So I'd get to listen to them and uh, realise, you know, these, these sort of bands that, that he's listening to can play. Yeah. Compared to things like, uh, I don't, I mean, even the Sex Pistols, really. I, I wasn't really into that stuff because... For me, it didn't sound so musical, really. It was a little bit too heavy as well. Yes. So when, when so, the sort of... Because we had the sort of the punk period, and then... Because I... You know, the glam thing was kind of in my... Because I'm probably two years older than you, I think. Yeah. So yeah. it was that kind of the glam and sweet and Gary I Glitter. I completely missed out on that, even though I know all these... Yes. Um, you know, these names of, of glam bands. I didn't know what they sounded like. No. I knew what the Bay City Rollers sounded like, and I know they weren't glam. But the only thing I knew about these bands were, yes. uh, you know, the pictures on the, on the cover of things like Looking. Remember that? Oh magazine? God, yes, Looking. Looking and sort of pop star and, and things like that, really. Oh God, yes. So, uh, Jackie. I mean, a lot of it was image for me as well. You know, later on, I'd see pictures of, say, George Harrison with Big Gretsch guitars and then Orange Juice with Big Gretsch guitars. So, you know, the image was always so important for me as well. Yeah. Um, but it had to be backed up musically. Yes. So but, when you the, know, with great style and everything as well. So when when the eighties hit and we had that post punk period, Thatcher had got in seventy nine, um, yeah. and suddenly we had conservative government until nineteen ninety seven, and um, yeah, so that that was kind of interesting. There was huge unemployment. And you were sort of sixteen, seventeen at that period, and sort of the eighties had started. So because because yeah. I, I suppose indie pop, I sort of you know put down more the years between you know from 83 onwards and and before yeah. that you had like orange juice that everyone seems to love and then you started to get yeah. this new sound i mean you had bands like um simple minds and big country new too who had started doing things but then that kind of oh yes indies really started to kick off here yeah. um a few yeah. years later with the june brides and all those kind of bands and the war yeah, fans right, yeah, yeah yeah no yeah, so but you so you in kind of 83 being incredibly young sort of get into your first band yeah well first professional band yeah i mean i was 16 when i, I joined last set camera um just from going to an audition basically um anyway it was an incredible look just being 
you know, asked to audition and, you know, after writing to them, asked to come down and audition and then, you know, getting the job there and then. Um, I thought, <laughs> well, I, I, I'm sure I thought at the time, is it this easy to, uh, you know, to make it in music, you know, to have a career in music? But I'd been in a lot of bands by that time anyway, you know, we'd both, we'd mostly been doing things like a lot of Beatles covers and, you know, we'd always been writing our own songs. I'd been learning a lot of how to play the guitar. So I had a good grounding in everything, or so I thought really that way, you know, obviously it was only as a hobby. So yeah, I was uh, I was 16 and then, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to, to be able to join Asset Camera as the second guitarist. Yes, that must and have been... Was, uh, oh, it was, it was mad. It was, um, it, obviously, I was, you know, I was just over the moon. So happy because I was, I was a huge fan of theirs anyway. There were two bands I was obsessed with from about 1980, I think. And that was Orange Juice and Asset Camera. So to join one of those bands was just uh, it, was, it was just one of those unbelievable things for me yes actually and you know orange juice split up later on and they went in two different directions edwin collins asked me to play with him and the other half which was a guitarist called james kirk and the drummer stephen daly formed a new band uh, called memphis so they asked me to join as well so it was just within this this couple of years really these strange things were happening like I say, you know, I'm sure I thought it, it, this is really easy. It must be. Yeah, absolutely. But obviously, you know, obviously it wasn't. That's just, you know, from being so so young and foolish, really. And did you leave? That's and and at that stage, had you left school? And so this was your kind of main occupation. Yeah, I just I just left school. Um, I was actually doing at the time just before leaving school. I had a Saturday job at the um, at the newspapers in in Manchester. So that was as a messenger, and that was just coming to an end. And I'd just started doing this sort of, I think it was youth, youth training scheme at the time, where you learn to, you know, it's a bit like being an apprentice. Yes. Uh, learning to do bits of, uh, bits of plumbing and electrician, and, you know, a bit of bricklaying and plastering and all, all stuff like that. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if you've, you've seen what I look like, but I'm definitely not, I can, you know, I find... I struggle to lift up bricks, really, and I'm absolutely hopeless <laughs> with my hands apart from, apart from playing the guitar. So, um, you know, doing manual work or anything DIY is, uh, is just sort of pretty much impossible for me. I'm, I'm hopeless at it. Yes. And that's another thing I didn't pick up from my, my parents because my, my dad was the opposite. He was, he was great at everything like that. Yes. So, um, so I was just sort of doing this, um, this scheme. Where I think it was one of those things... A twenty-five pound a week thing, and because basically I didn't, I didn't know what I wanted to do really as a job. I mean, obviously I, I had dreams about, you know, making uh, making a career out of music and being a guitar player. But you, you know, even in those days, it, it was uh, you know pretty uh, sort of a million to one chance, yes, or thousand to one chance anyway. It's like saying you want to be an actor now. Well, I think, um, I suppose what I've noticed doing these these interviews, I suppose back in those days, people, there was like unemployment benefit and then there was job seekers allowance and enterprise allowance. So sometimes that gave people that ability to kind of do one of those schemes and be a musician for a year. And that was often... There was that, yeah. Um, That came in a bit later. I think that was, I think that came in about 86 or 87, the enterprise allowance scheme. So I think if that had been around in, in 80, 83... 
I'd probably have, have gone for that as well. But I think that was the same one. So I think it was £25 a week, something like that. Yeah, I uh, think... And um... I know a lot of people that did that, but basically it just seemed to be, uh, you know, just an excuse for them not to be able to uh, to have to sign on for a year or, or go and get a job for a year, really. I think it got the, um, the unemployment figure looked a bit better for that, <laughs> that period. It did, it did. <laughs> It was. I mean, it looked better on paper. Yeah, definitely looked better, yeah. and it just made everyone a bit happy. But bizarrely, you know, because yeah. I because I've sort of found that the because you know, because with a lot of the bands at that time, you know, you don't realise as a fan kind of how little money there is in music, no. and that's Not always wrong, a bit no. of a surprise. And then and so really, it's like if you can just about do enough touring, get enough you know, a few record sales, you might just get a little bit of an income. But when when that stops. Basically, you're not going to say, you go, oh, we've got all this money that we just got. You know, it's like, actually, you've got yeah. zero money. So if you haven't got well, any now, yeah. you've got none. There's no there's no more coming after the band split. So it's kind of a yeah. bit of a surprise. Yeah. Really. Well, you know, we've all heard the the, uh, the stories of bands, that the record, you know, their advance has, has uh, run out. They're still signed to the label, but they've all got to sign on the dole. And, uh, you know, they can't sign to anyone else as well. Uh, yes. They're still under contract. So to be honest, the money... So the money thing was was sort of far back in my mind, really. Um, I, I wanted to do something that I, you know, that I really enjoyed, obviously, and uh, you know, it just made me happy, which was playing music, and just my life being about music, and um, in a professional sense as well. Obviously, I, you know, I wanted to to earn a living doing it, but it's like you know, when I when I joined Asset Camera, they, they said you know we're on forty pound a week. Is that all right with you? And it's like, yeah, of course it is, yeah. Blimey. And the same with the bluebells later on. It's like, it's probably about, what is it, £150 a week these days. But it was, um, you know, you'd, you'd see bands like U2 and ABBA and, you know, the Rolling Stones and everything going around. And you, you'd realise they were rich. They were rich people. But the music that I loved, I, you know, I knew Orange Juice and the Monochrome set and... Uh, Bands like this were not were not rich people. No, and they, they weren't having uh, you know they weren't having hits at that point anyway. They did later on, but they weren't at that point. And at that stage, you had the famous postcard records that. Um, yeah, Alan yeah. Horn's postcard records. So, how did you find the famous Alan Horn? He's you know one of those kind of characters, isn't he? That has, yeah. has just become. Well, I met him. It's become legendary. It's yes. Become, uh, yeah, and enigma. A legend. That's it, yeah. Well, he, he was uh, the first time I met him was uh, I think he was '84 when I first played with Edwin Collins and the singer called Paul Quinn. I'm not sure if you remember Paul Quinn. Oh yes, Borgie Borgie. Yes. Um, so those they'd set up a duo, Edwin and Paul, and uh, they asked me to to play with them. I think it was a, we did a couple of radio sessions at that time. So uh, I turned up at Edwin was li- living in Wilsdon. At that point, I think it was Grace that rang me up, uh, Edwin's wife, Grace. So I made my way around to the uh, to the flat to have a rehearsal and a, and a meeting just with Edwin, just just the two of us. So we were sat on his bed and just playing through a few things, and you know we'd play through a few Orange Juice songs, which uh, I sort of knew inside out because I'd, I'd been obsessed with them for ages. So uh, I think we'd probably spend the afternoon rehearsing and chatting, and then Alan came round, Alan Horn and uh, Paul Quinn. So I, I don't know if this is just in my imagination, but it, was, it seemed to be a really tiny car 
And you can imagine, really, Alan Horn just turning up in this, like, you know, when you see in these old Italian films and there's a tiny little car and everyone sort of scrambles in and they're pushing each other into the back seat and everything. Yes. So the four of us got, got in his car and they were, uh, we were going out for something. We went to the pub and then for a, a meal later on. And they were just sort of acting really daft. I mean, I'd, I'd read about Alan Horn in the past uh, because, he'd, you know, he'd accompany Orange Juice on a few interviews. And I sort of knew about his sense of humour, really, and I knew he had a really dry sense of humour, as in uh, Edwin's as well. So they were just sort of lacking about all the time, really, pushing each other back and forward while Alan was driving, and, uh, you know, me and Paul were sat in the back seat, just sort of really quiet. <laughs> but it was, it was great. I mean, it was they were just really easy to get on with. Edwin was really nice. So... Uh, we did that. I can't remember how long I played with them there. Like, like I say, it was just over these two sessions. Um, and I was in the Bluebells at the time. So I, I think about a year later, well, it could have been sooner than that, they rang me up again and asked me to uh, to play on the next single, which was called Ain't That Always The Way. This was Edwin Collins and Paul Quinn. So I came down to London and just put my guitars down for that song. It's a really good song, actually. Uh, and then I didn't hear anything until, I think it was sometime in 85, they wanted me to play with them full-time. This was uh, this, this is what I heard through the Bluebells manager. So uh, I, I don't think the Bluebells were that happy about that. I think they were saying they're trying to poach me. Right. I, I didn't do that anyway. I stayed with the Bluebells for a while. Yes. Until the end, until the end of 85, really. Blimey. In fact, the strange thing is, when I, when I was doing that, while I was with the Bluebells, Obviously, Edwin was living in uh, in Wilsdon at the time. But I moved into Edwin's old flat up in Glasgow. I didn't know this at the time. And it, because, you know, I was spending all the time up in Glasgow anyway, rehearsing and recording. So <clears throat> I'd moved into this flat. And, uh, and then I found out later it was uh, Edwin's flat up in uh, just off the Great Western Road. Great. West End of Glasgow. So uh, it's strange how these, these things, you know, this guy that I used to idolise... He was, you know, he was a big style icon with everything, with haircuts, guitars, clothes, and everything, and songwriting, guitar playing, everything. He was, he was my, uh, my hero. Yeah. Strange how I, I, you know, I just sort of followed in his footsteps in a way. That is a bit spooky. Without sort of trying, yeah, and wearing these clothes to go to the pub because I didn't have a, you know, a, a jacket to put on. It was pouring down. So I was wearing one of his coats, and I was going, "This is the life." <laughs> yes. So with 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 Aztec Camera, you you toured with them, didn't you? And yeah, and massive. Uh, big, it was yeah, it was mostly touring. Um, so it was as soon as I joined the band, really, it was we did a couple of weeks rehearsal, and then it was uh, a couple of TV shows, um, a thing called the Switch, where we were all dressed in uh, sort of these Sergio Tacchini drag suits. For some reason, I can't remember what the reasoning was behind that, but it was it was the first ever uh, time I'd been on TV. It was a live show, and then we did Pebble Mill. I mean, I cringe when I watch these things now. Oh, excellent! Like, Pebble oh. Mill at one, Jesus, yeah, crazy! That. That's excellent because that had Kenny Ball and his Jasmine, didn't it? Kenny, uh, Kenny Ball, yeah. It used to be. Uh, I remember so, if yeah. in the seventies, if you were ever off school, you know, you had to have Lucas Aid because you really were ill, and then you just yeah. watch random things. I still do. 
and um, Lucas Aid and, and Pebble Mill at one. And it was like, there wasn't much else. I mean, this is the 70s, you know, so you didn't have anything yeah. else to do apart from slightly throw up on the sofa and watch <laughs> Pebble Mill at one. And that was it, really, I think. Um, well, and then yeah. till five o'clock or half four, then there's children's programme. So yeah. good, the yeah. good old days. Well, you've watched the Sullivans as well, I suppose, and uh, Sons and Daughters, you know, they, and I think probably... Uh, well, Neighbours probably started a bit later. But yeah, yeah no, Pe- that Pebble definitely... Mill was a staple, wasn't it? Yes. But then, so then you did the Bluebell. Did you do any recording, you know, like studio work with them? With the Bluebells? Yes. Yeah, there was a lot. Yeah, there was, actually, we did an album. Um, it was called Sisters. It's just been re-released now. So uh, there must have been some interest in it. I'm not sure which labels released it. Yeah, I just heard uh, still in touch with with Ken and David and and Robert as well. I just heard from Robert. Well, it's interesting because because it does feature quite a you know. There's a guy no one would know this. I don't think the fabulous (laughs) Poodles. Bobby Valentino was on one on Young. Oh, of course, yeah. And he was in the violin player. He was the violin on the fabulous Poodles. Who I don't know why, but I do know. I vaguely know him. So that was a was that. So did you play on that actual the big single? I, no, I didn't play on Young at Heart. That was recorded just before I joined. But there are two versions going around of Young at Heart and, because it was re-recorded, and I can't remember why. Not sure why, but I remember I was there with Bobby playing the, uh, you know, he's playing the, the violin parts. Yes. Um, so I put guitars down on that as well. Um, and I think, it, I can't remember how close it was to the original. I was probably trying to get close uh, but a great guitarist called Billy Bremner had put guitars down on the original. He was sort of, I think he was from the sort of Dave Edmonds uh, stable. Really great sort of rockabilly guitarist. So, uh, mm-hmm. but I can't remember if it was one of these things, you know, you record for Top of the Pops and there'd be a live vocal everyone else had mime. But it was used quite a few times as well. But, the, you know, the big famous one is... Uh, is well, I'm not sure how much of the original Bluebells are on there, uh, but Bobby Valentino was on there, yeah, and Billy Bremner. Yes, and um, bass player from uh, Lloyd Cole. It was a classic lineup, actually. And then, so, so during this time, this is when kind of indie pop is really happening. So, did were you sort of feeling particularly excited by you know what were because because obviously you were almost twenty by then, weren't you? You were still so young. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think actually, yeah, I was seventeen and eighteen in um, in the Bluebells, so I was really young. Yeah, um, we did a lot of recording. We did a few singles, a song called Calf, and Will She Be- Always Be Waiting? Uh, like I say, the album as well. We did a lot of touring as well. We seem to be touring in all over Europe a lot and Scandinavia. And did that help with it? Because I did an interview with dear old Fast Eddie from Moto and he, his early years were sort of playing in lots of bands and especially kind of yeah. one of these semi-professional bands that no one, I don't know, Curtis Knight, I think, was or Kurt, Curtis something. And he said yeah. that's when you really learn how to play your instrument was kind of just doing it with these old guys and, and sort of touring endlessly. Did you find that the, the touring kind of circuit helped with your sort of playing? Did you start thinking, God, actually, it's, I've really progressed here? Because obviously, you know, you start, then things have to happen, don't they, if you're going to continue? Yeah. yeah. Well, obviously, yeah. And before I joined that set camera, obviously, I was totally inexperienced. And, you know... Uh, Roddy was only a couple of days, couple of years older than me, and he was he was a lot more experienced than me. 
So I was really inexperienced. But playing in Aztec Camera, actually, I started then. I started really learning from Roddy. Um, he's such an incredible guitar player anyway. And, uh, and obviously a brilliant songwriter, singer-songwriter. So I was learning a lot that way. Uh, and a lot of it, to be honest, by osmosis, because I wasn't consciously just watching Roddy what he was doing, but I was, you know, I was just picking it all up, really. I was just pretty much like a sponge. And I'm sure a lot of the time I, I barely, barely said anything, really, because I was so shy. Yes. Um, but we, just, we were a really tight-knit four-piece, really, when we were on tour. And uh, we were just, and, you know, I'm pretty sure it was quite mad, really. Everyone was drinking a lot and just enjoying themselves, really. Everyone was really young. Uh, so Dave, I suppose Dave was maybe mid-twenties, maybe a bit, bit older. But he was, you know, I obviously knew he was a great player. Campbell, the bass player, was a great player. So I was, you know, I was for the first time ever, I was playing with these great musicians, because the people that I've been in bands with have just been friends, you know. We'd all we'd all be learning together. Yes. So I think with, within that that period, which was a bit less than a year, I think I'd I'd probably learned a lot in that time. And then, to be honest, between Asset Camera and the Bluebells, I played with the Colourfield, which was Terry Hall's. Yes. And uh, there was a, a fingerstyle guitar player there, Toby Lyons, who was a really good player as well. Oh, this acoustic stuff. So I think in that way, yeah, I mean, the variety was there playing with these, these different people at such a young age. Um, and then I think mainly with the Bluebells, I think we just seemed to be, it was more of a happy-go-lucky sort of band, if you, uh, if you sort of excuse the expression. It was just, you know, it seemed to be people having fun and, you know, not, not taking things too seriously, really. But having chart just, success is quite interesting. It had hits. Yeah, they were having hits, and uh, and it just seemed to be everyone was just you know flowing along with it, and really you know without speaking too much of any strategies of uh, (laughs) musical direction or anything like that, which was obviously you know a different thing with the Smiths or Asset Camera or or Terry Hall even. Yes, you know, so so it would just all just you know flow along really, and uh, like I say, we just enjoy doing. It was mostly mostly touring in Europe, like I say, and we just enjoy doing that, you know, just having a laugh through the day, yes. playing our instruments and doing the gigs at night. Uh, all the time, you know, the people seeing us that had, uh, that had liked either Young at Heart or uh, these other hits that they were having. Yeah, well, it's kind of, the, I suppose it becomes what a soundtrack of your, because I think with the pop fan, you know, I mean, sometimes you can be much younger, but there is kind of that period, you know, the 16 to 20 year olds, you know, that's kind yeah. of the, the music you listen to there is so form, you know, such a formative period. And that's the music yeah. you kind of continue for the rest of your life. And, you oh, know, yeah. when, when yeah. you know, uh, being obsessed with Lemmy and also David Bowie, who are the same age, yeah. they'd always, you know, when they said, you know, who's your influences? And they both would say, you know, Little Richard and, you know, Buddy yeah. Holly and then, you know, Elvis and all these Elvis other... And, yeah. And yeah. Eddie Cochran, you know, and it was like, well, yeah. you know, you, you know, you can't, you, you know, you're only at that age once, and that's the music that you you become obsessed with, and then probably the Beatles and stuff. So, yeah, the yeah. early Your Beatles. Your developing around that time, I think, and musically especially. So it's all it's all sinking in, and it's just it's going to, you know, these influences are going to come out in in some way. Like in, like you mentioned that you know the Beatles and Paul McCartney was obsessed with Elvis and Little Richard and uh, Gene Vincent. So yes. 
Dude, and, and, you know, which would have, and they never ripped them off, really. I'm sure that, you know, they were just really influenced by them lyrically, and uh, but they never never sort of ripped them off musically. Yes. Apart from, you know, when they do these uh, the covers of them. But, you know, this, uh, they would have just sounded like an old-fashioned sort of Gene Vincent or Buddy Holly karaoke band if they'd have done that. But So it's incredible how they, you know, their heroes, they'd taken that on board and then just gone in these mad directions you know, pioneers of, of everything they did, really. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then you have quite a year, don't you? Eighty-six is one of your wow life. Does yeah. does yeah. life completely? You know, at the time, did it feel like this is quite different? And looking back, do you think, yeah. wow, eighty-six? Uh, oh, it did. Yeah, that is, that's sort of. Yeah, I suppose it's a little bit of a turning point, really. I realised at the time, not just. Well, I mean, there's two reasons, really. I was I was playing with. Um, Terry Hall again because I'd left the Bluebells by this time um, so Terry asked me to, to play with the Colourfield again on this British tour so that was great because I'd, I'd known them for a while and they were like you know they sort of, Terry was a friend by this point I'd, then, I'd met my partner at, at this time in early 85 uh, who I'm still with now so that was a massive turning point in my life and you know life was great and then I was asked to join the Smiths in around February, something like that. Yes. And obviously, you know, I've said it, I've said it a lot before. I didn't know too much about the Smiths at the time I was asked to join them. You know, I did later on. I'd listened to everything later on, but I did know, you know, how much of a an influential band they were, how big they were, and you know, I knew a lot of people that that loved them. So, and I knew they were really, you know, like I say about the Bluebells, it was a different thing. You know, the, the Smiths. I knew that they. They had this sort of vision, you know, sort of tunnel vision. They knew what they wanted. They were going for it, and they were, you know, they stayed true to it, which was which was great. Um, so it was just, yeah, I was, you know, I was joining this band that were. It was it was like being asked to join the Beatles, really. <laughs> you know. I think the two best bands in the in the world were the Beatles and the Smiths. Yes, well, it was. So it was um, uh, yeah, well, I suppose because like the '80s, they were like you know. I suppose you did have Michael Jackson, but you had people like Prince, Madonna, and yeah. kind of Morrissey, who were like these kind of very big characters, very different worlds, yeah. obviously. But you yeah. know, they they were kind of big. You know, everything they said, everything they did, you know, it was so grandiose. So it was quite yeah. funny that yeah. you suddenly appear in, you know, because actually with, with the this doing this show, I mean, 83, I always put indie pop down between 83 to 85, 87, and that is kind of the years of the Smiths, because then, you know, things change after that, because, you know, there's yeah. a whole world of ecstasy, and then people want dance music, and the next generation yeah. of 17, 20-year-olds actually want their own bands. They don't really care about the bands from 83 anymore. They want the latest kind of... They want to get loaded, don't they, and dance. And um, But, yeah, so so 86 is definitely the one. And at that stage, was it the case that you replaced Andy on bass at that point? Well, that was, that was spoken about, but I was only ever asked to join the band as a guitar player. Right. Um, you know, like when I had the first meeting with Johnny Marr, he did mention that, you know, if you want to replace Andy, you know, because they were, they were going to get rid of him. You know, you can join the band now, really. So, uh, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not a bass player at all. I, it didn't interest me, you know, one bit, really, even though it would have been a great opportunity, obviously. Um, but, I'm, you know, I, I was a guitar player. I mean, I play bass now a lot on, on my own stuff, and uh, 
other people's when they asked me. But at the time, I just, you know, I did want to stay playing a, a guitar as, yes. as a guitar player. You know, I didn't want to be a bass player with anyone, really, even though I knew, you know, it was an incredible opportunity. But the thing is, with Johnny asking me that anyway, I'd known for a while that he, he had in mind asking me to be a guitar player anyway. So looking back, that's probably why I wasn't interested in uh, saying yes to, to playing yes. the bass. I probably knew what the uh, what the next question coming up was, going to be. Which, which is was, you know, well, you know, they eventually asked me to join as a guitar player. Yeah. Which was, you know, the, which was the perfect thing for me. And did it, because actually, because I just remember now, because Ivor from um, Easterhouse, they yeah. supported the Smiths once. And I it remember did, him, yeah. I remember him saying, at a sound check, I think they were watching, you know, the Smiths were watching Easterhouse and saw there was two guitar players and were really impressed with the sound, thinking, yeah. you know, was there... I mean, that's just his theory of it, I guess. But was there that sense that they needed a bit more firepower in the... Um... I think so. I mean, definitely for live, you know, that, that's without a doubt. And, uh, you know, there, there are some bands that will take on another guitarist anyway, just as a touring musician. And it was never like that for me. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have done that anyway. But I joined, you know, obviously I joined and we were a five-piece. So... Yeah, I remember Johnny saying, you know, once I joined, he'd, he'd been talking about, you know, we had this huge American tour coming up and we were playing big places. And, the, you know, the places that were, they were playing in Britain as well were, were pretty big at the time. So, you know, he was, he was worried about how, how the Smiths were going to come across in these huge arenas with just, you know, as, as the four of them, really. So it made sense. Obviously, you know, there's a lot of guitar parts on Smiths records, on most of them. So it's really hard to replicate live. Yes. Even with two guitars, you know, you've got to miss a lot of things out. And, you know, they were never one of these bands that I'd just put... It, this was before samplers, I think, but, you know, they, they wouldn't play to tape or anything like that or, you know, triggering things from, uh, from the drums. Yeah. So it just made, um, you know, I think it was, it was just that. And that was probably the, the main decision for Johnny, really. But like I say, you know, I, was, I played on the records as well. I was... Uh, you know, I was, I was in the band. And did you feel, because because the, the, the classic kind of, for me, the classic, classic some Rolling Stones kind of lineup was the kind of late 60s and early 70s with Exile on Main Street, where they had Keith Richards and then Mick Taylor as well. Did And that yeah. kind of complemented each other incredibly well. Did right. you Did you sort of, when you, you know, as a kind of curious fan, when you're asked to put, be, you know, in that position, you're thinking, God, this is my kind of, Johnny's obviously your, uh, the other person that you're kind of having to work yeah. with, a bit like the rhythm section, the bass and drums. So do, yeah. you, do you sit down quite a bit and just start sort of working out who's playing what, or were you sticking with rhythm guitar all the time? No, it's, I mean, it's, it, it, it's strange when people say, oh, you know, he was a rhythm guitarist or I'm, I'm a rhythm guitarist. It was never like that. A lot of the parts actually were were rhythm parts, but they'd be played in a certain way where it just doesn't sound like you know you're strumming up and down. And a lot of the times Johnny would be playing a you know a, a rhythm, or the two of us, both of us, I think something like Big Mouth Strikes Again, that's a good example. Um, but most of the time, no, it was you know we'd we'd speak about the parts that we were going to each play. Really, obviously, you know Johnny was the boss, so I was I was doing what he was he was telling me to. Um, but it seemed to come together really, really quickly. And they, they barely rehearsed, really, at the time. You know, we, we only had a few rehearsals. 
and and it was always without Morrissey as well. You know, it'd sometimes pop in at the end or just come in towards the end of the day, have a listen. But the the, the things that just you know it, it just really sort of work itself out there really because Johnny would say something like, "I'm gonna I'm gonna play this lead line here that was on the on the record," so I'd be playing this maybe these arpeggios or like you say a strumming part. Uh, you know, there's there's things some of the lead lines I'd I'd play. Yes. You know, I know it's over, and I do the the uh, the chugging tremolo part in How Soon Is Now. So there are all these. Uh, it was never just straight strumming, really. Simple strumming. Yes. And and did you find because because obviously there's the passion of the Smiths fan, and yeah. um, and that commitment. I mean, what was the tour? What were the tours like for that? Because you did, you know, both the UK and then also you went to America in with America. them. America, yes. Yeah. Oh, it was incredible. It was the first time I'd seen anything like that, really. I mean, I'd I'd been used to, even because I've been I'd been doing it for three years up, up to this point, and whoever I play with, whether it was the Bluebells, you know, they got a lot of teenage girls coming to see them and sort of young pop music fans, or if it was Asset Camera, there'd be a lot of indie kids there. Um, I mean, I you know I, I was the same. I was one of the indie kids that had gone see Asset Camera or Orange Juice when I was really young in, in Manchester. But you know, these, however passionate you were about these bands, like I was, you, you know, there wouldn't be any stage invasions or just this intense atmosphere. You know, people would really just you know watch them and then they'd go off. Apart from you know a lot of people going back in the dressing rooms to get autographs and say hello and everything. But the Smiths, as soon as I joined the Smiths from the first gig, it was just, I thought, wow, this is unbelievable. Mm. You know, I'd heard, and I'd actually seen, I'd seen the Smiths play a few times. So I'd, I'd seen, you know, the, the passion from, from the fans. And I thought, it's, it's just insane. I thought it was just like Beatlemania, really. Yes, you know, well, absolutely. Uh, I mean... Because I'd, that's the only band I'd seen with that. I'd never really followed Rolling Stones, so I'm sure they had it to a, a certain extent. Um, but yeah, it was it was incredible. And people have said, you know, it, it, to me since then, it's like you know the only other band that's seen crowds like that are uh, things like either Morrissey, it, it, it's solo stuff, or a band like the Arctic Monkeys. You know, right. These, these, the crowd would be just really intense and passionate and just you know really loving fans. So it was it was incredible, just you know, experiencing that. And it was uh, obviously it was great to be a part of it. As yeah, well, as and you and I, and I remember because it was one of another one of those essential things we all did in the eighties was watch you know the tube on a Friday night. The tube, yeah. And yeah. Uh, that was when I guess was that one of your first appearances with the band, or had you? Been... Uh, it was. Yeah, I think it wasn't too. I think it was probably the third one. I think we did the whistle test first. Uh, and then, yeah, the tube. I think the tube was just before we went to America on that tour. But I mean, I've not seen that for a long time. I've not seen any of them for a long time, really. But I seem to remember the tube one was the crowd there was quite laid back, and you know, obviously it was a TV crowd. Yes. You know, they loved it. But um, you know, you don't get these uh, these stage diving people. Well, I when always you're, remember uh, when you've seen a band on TV. Actually, the crowd always looked incredibly <laughs> bored on the tube. Actually, I just always remember thinking, "God, they get all these bands every Friday, and they just don't seem yeah. bothered." Yeah, well, that, um... I did that. I'd done that about. I think I played that three times by that time. Um, I played it with the Blue Bells a couple of times, and I did it with the Colourfield as well. 
And yeah, a couple of times the crowd were were quite bored, really. Yeah, they must have so, thought. You know, God. it was just like you know maybe they're just looking at the band on stage. A lot half of them would be looking to see what's going on on the other side of the the studio, or some of them were looking for like Jules Holland or Paula Yates trying to get their autograph. But yeah, um, no, but I think I think um, the Smiths one. I think everyone was. Uh, I, I'm sure everyone was a fan there. Really, a lot of them will have gone to see the Smiths. I would have thought so. But then, because you'd hit, you'd hit twenty by then. I know I'm obsessed with your age. Uh, yeah, nineteen. I was nineteen. Just nineteen. At that point, yeah. I had the twentieth in uh, in America when we got there. A few days after the tube, actually. Yes, that was so, amazing. Uh, that... I, I mean, I, re- I, I remember it well because <laughs> I don't remember it well. If you know what I mean, uh... it was one of those, you know, twentieth, and everyone buying. I think they bought me twenty. Uh, what was it? Brandy and Brandy Alexander's or Brandy and Cokes. This was Johnny and uh, and Andy in the uh, in the bar downstairs in this uh, this hotel in London, London, Ontario, in Canada. So I remember that up until about ten at night, and it was uh, it was a great night. But obviously, you know, I think we all blacked out anyway. We all passed out. We were all keeping up with each other. It was just one of the worst hangovers I ever had, really, the next yes. day. And we were playing live as well. You know, we were playing the next the next day. And I was, you know, it was, I was only, well, I was 20. And uh, I still sort of didn't know how to drink or what I was doing, thank God, anyway. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, it's so, always you, know, hard, never, you never learn, do you? Like I say, young and foolish. Yes, though one day when you get certain age, you think, I'm not doing that again. That's disgusting. I'm never drinking again. Yeah. Never, yeah. Never. Well, I, I barely drink. I barely touch it at all now. Yes. You know, because you just end up feeling, oh, no. It's not good. No. But no, then, maybe tomorrow. so when the, the Smiths break up, that's 80, 86. Uh, no, shit, they don't, sorry, they don't break <laughs> up, do they? They break up 86. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you finish in 86, that's what I was yeah. going to say. Then, then sort of, I mean... I, is that a bit of a surprise? Were you thinking, oh, that didn't expect that to happen? Yeah, a little bit. I wasn't. I wasn't too surprised um, because it was. We weren't. We weren't. I mean, we got on most of the most of the time really well. Most of the time, just at the very end, I think, you know, we we sort of drifting apart a little bit because I'd, you know, I'd spend a lot of time on my own later on. And, and like I say, you know, I was, I, was, I was just really, I was a real introvert in them days. And it's, you know, it's sort of really hard to sort of meet new people. And, you know, I, obviously I've been in the band a while, so I knew them all. But I just sort of started preferring time on my own more, really. And obviously if you're in a band, and a band like the Smiths as well, you, you know, you can't really do that. And that, you, you sort of ostracised a little bit in a way. Well, not, not ostracised, but, yes. you know, I think it'll start... It'll start wearing on people if you start doing that. Um, so, you know, it, I, I don't think that helps really at all. And uh, to be honest, you know, there's a little bit, I was going through a bit of a, a, a bad period in my life, really. You know, there's a period of depression at that point. And when you're feeling like that, obviously, the last thing you want to do is is speak to people. Yes. You know, and it's, uh, there, was, there was quite a lot of pressure. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to sort of curl up into a ball, really, at, at that point. Had that sort so of... I, the, I was going to say, did that experience, and especially that particular time, was that kind of hard on the confidence? Because obviously, you know, if you start feeling un, insecure or unconfident, it kind of leads to yeah. more slight paranoia and Jesus yeah. Christ, you know. Yeah, this I is... mean, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't realise that at the time because I didn't know what I was going through. I just thought I was, you know, I was a bit, I was a bit mad really. I was, I was feeling, you know, I just thought, well, I've got no confidence at all, and I'm, and I'm just too shy to to get on with anyone or, or all this because it's just, you know, the, at that period, like I mentioned, I think it was around October, '86. Uh, I couldn't really speak to anyone, and you know, it's like I said, that you know, it's having top personal problems really. So, yeah, it just, you know, you, you do start feeling paranoid, really. Uh, and I, I just didn't feel close to anyone else, really, at that time. You know, anyone, not just in the band, you know, anyone around, really. And uh, I think, you know, Johnny had rang me a couple of times to have a chat on the phone. I wasn't available. I, I don't know where I was. I wasn't in. And I'd ring Johnny back, and he wasn't around. So it just sort of petered out that way. Uh, and then, you know, I just heard through a friend. Actually, it was Ivor from Easter House who we uh, we mentioned a couple of times. Uh, Ivor and Gary, the drummer, did say, "Oh, we don't don't think you're in the band anymore." So uh, it was just, you know, it was just unfortunate that I hear about it that way. Even though I, you know, I did have a good inkling that it was coming to an end. Yes, um, I mean, that's that's kind of quite devastating, though, isn't it? I mean, it would just well, I think, yeah, I mean, at the time, it, yeah, at, at the time I was disappointed in the way I heard about it. But, you know, as far as being in the band, when I, I wasn't, you know, I, I think now nowadays it would be different. You know, if you're kicked out of a huge band, um, but then, I, you know, I'm, I'm not the same character as I used to be anyway. You know, I can, I can speak for myself a lot more, I'm a lot more confident these days. Um, so yeah, I think mainly, to be honest, I just wanted to be happy whatever I was doing, and I just wasn't happy at, at any point at, at that period in my life. Yes. You know, so like I say, I didn't know what was going on in my head at the time. I, you know, you, you learn later on as you learn what, you know, the, the parts of your your uh, your brain, how they work, and everything, and what you you know your thought processes are. But um, but I didn't know that till till much later. Yeah, so, God, it's uh, quite so it was, Yeah, it wasn't like, you know, I felt the end of the world. The end of the world had arrived because I wasn't in the band anymore. It wasn't like that at all. You know, I was just I just wanted to be happy what I was doing. You know, whether that meant going back to playing in small bands or or getting a real job or, or going to college or, or what, you know, it's... Uh, I wasn't... Um, you know, I, I just wasn't thinking, oh, I've got to be successful got to carry on being successful doing this. I didn't think like that. You know, I knew there's more to life than that. Yeah, God, horrendous. If that makes sense. Yes, it does. It, it's, you uh, know, I, I still feel exactly the same now, really. It's, you know, there's a lot more things. Obviously, it's, it's great to, to be successful in what you're doing. And if it's music, it's the thing, thing that you love. And the only thing I can do, it's great. But it's not it's not the main thing in the world. You know, it's uh, there are you know, things miles more important. Yes. You know, my uh, t- being happy in my relationship with my partner, he was the same one as uh, as 35 years ago, as I mentioned. That's 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 the main thing in my life. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So then, did you have a gap, a break between that and then your next, then joining um, Adult Net? Yeah, uh, I think it was. Uh, yeah, it was. It was a bit of a break. Um, Eighty-seven. Yeah. 
Because I, I, cause bizarrely, I remember John Peel playing um, a track called Stars Say Go, I think. It was from the Adult Net. And actually, Adult Net. Um, yeah. and sort of actually buying the 12 inch was very exciting. But then I think you joined the band after that Probably single. after that. Yes. Yeah. I think it was uh, a guy called Simon Rogers that probably played on that uh, or produced it. Um, there, was, there was a song called Spin This Web. Oh, yes. As well, uh, which he did. So I'm not sure what happened there, but with, with Simon and, and Bricks. Uh, but Mike rang me up, Mike Joyce, and said, uh, oh, we're playing with, uh, with Brick Smith. She's got a band called The Adult Net. I think I'd heard about her at the time. So him and Andy were doing that. Said, uh, you know, will you do it with us? Do you fancy it? Uh, so yeah, I thought, you know, I'll, I'll do that. So uh, I haven't seen Mike and Andy since the Smiths, really. So uh, this must have been the Smiths split up mid '87, something like that, did they? Something like that. Yeah. You probably know more than. No, well, I got, than, <laughs> it was kind of. It wasn't the early part. It was, I think, towards the lat well, autumn probably. Right. So mm. it was probably around that time yeah. that Mike and Andy started uh, playing with Bricks. So, yeah, um, again, they were rehearsing in Mike's cellar, as the Smiths did. Uh, so I went round and started playing. So I, I joined joined the adult net there with, with Bricks and uh, just got on really well with that. So we did, um, we did a, a, a gig, actually, at the ICA. That was the first thing. Actually, that was the only thing that I did with Mike and Andy and Bricks. We did one gig. Uh, and then Mike and Andy, I think, I don't know. I don't know where they went. I don't know if they went off to play with Sinead O'Connor or or somebody else. I'm not sure. But they went. So uh, I stayed with Bricks. We did an album, and uh, Tom Burke was the drummer, which was another wow. great one for me because I'd always loved his playing. I loved Blondie when I was younger. Um, so you know, they were talking about getting Clem Burke in, which I thought oh, that's such a great idea. Uh, Craig Leon was producing the album. It, I'd always loved anyway. He'd, he'd done a lot of Ramones and Talking Heads work, and he's sort of this legend in uh, in American sort of uh, sort of CBGB's era, really. Yeah, he'd come through, and uh, he sort of lumped in a lot with the uh, the television era as well, which you know I loved all that. Uh, Richard Hell, and uh, he was producing it, and we just got on like a house, you know, like a house on fire, really. Oh, so uh, that that was amazing. That was that was another great thing. You know, there was a lot of money thrown thrown at, at this uh, this band. Great recording studios and you know a lot of time spent there. So uh, it's a shame nothing. I don't think anything happened with it really. God, so close. So that sort of fell fell apart really. Probably HCA. Um, I can't remember really why, but I remember telling Bricks, I've, you know, I'm, I'm leaving to uh, to play with Morrissey again. Wow. So it's probably it's probably around '88, I think. But it was great that that period of playing with with Bricks and recording with her was. Uh, I loved it. Yes. Loved it. So it was kind of because some of the, yes, I hadn't kind of, yes, I had the, the connection of sort of sort of being back with some of your old mates, or well, not mates, but, you know, bandmates, yeah. 
Did you, I mean, because I always remember watching one of those documentaries, I think it was about bands and, I don't know, reunions. I yeah. think it was the, the hazards of reunion. And I remember Stuart yeah. Copeland, who was in the police, you know, they, they had a reunion and it, and it wasn't going terribly well. And he said, right. what we really needed was band therapy. And I think they had to have band therapy because him and Sting just weren't getting on. And they cleared the air and managed to finish this tour. I think there was a lot of money at stake. So it was kind of like... Yeah. Kind of please, 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 please sort out your issues because frankly, it's it's kind of um, yeah, it's a big gig here. Did you? I mean, did you yeah. sort of ever have those conversations with any of the ex-member? You know, the members of the you know the Smiths like Michael Andy or yeah. Um, me, me, Mike, and Andy have spoken about things like that over the years. Yeah, we've you know we've obviously I've never spoken like that with Morrissey, and it's I've spoken a little bit about about that. Um, with Johnny as well a few years ago, and uh, you know I think you know people grow up. You're you're all really young at, at these times when uh, you know you're having success with these things, and you know a lot of people will, will act on the spur of the moment or you know say something, and you know it's it'll just sort of great with with the Smiths. Obviously, it was more serious than that because there was a lot of sort of lawsuits going around really um, with with various people. Not just the band. I think there was, I think there was other things, other people trying to sue the Smiths, and uh, you know, me, me, Mike, and Andy just sort of, you know, laugh, laugh things off really about what happened, and you know, it's all, it's all about yes. being in a successful, successful band really. But then at the same time, you know, whoever you working, we were working for Morrissey at that time, you know, obviously he was, he was the boss, so. Uh, you know, we we never got into any conversations like that with Morrissey. No, my God. So, what was it like, kind of having a sort of working again on a couple of the debut? You know, you had a solo. You had a. You played on. Did you play at the Wolverhampton gig? Yeah, yeah, we did that. Well, I'm not sure if it was a gig, but it was an event. It was an event. Was, my God, it yeah. was an event. Yeah. Well, it's. Um, I think you know. I think I saw it years ago, but I can't. I can't watch it. Again, I can't, I can't go near it. It just, it just drives me mad, I think. But it's, um, I remember I enjoyed that at the time. But yeah, that was, um, I think that was just after we recorded. It was, what happened was basically Morrissey had had, had um, his first album out anyway. After the Smiths, he'd done this solo album with Vinnie Riley. Yeah, and Stephen Street. Stephen yeah. Street did it. Yes. So this was going to be his second album. So he wanted to get me, Mike and Andy together again to do it which he did and there was another there was a session guitarist involved as well um and Stephen Street was was producing and he was writing the songs as well so that was that was great it all went really well um but one by one the songs started getting dropped and there was you know there was the Playboy's single it was interesting drug obviously those those weren't dropped but it ended up that there was there wasn't enough songs for an album after all these songs have been dropped, really, so that sort of that was the beginning of the end, I think, for uh, for Stephen working with yeah. Morrissey. And at that point, it was. Uh, I mean, it, it was a good, you know, it was a good period, you know, and everyone was just getting on well. I think people had, had grown up a little bit as well in that that couple of years since I'd seen them last. Uh, it, it was great working with Stephen again as well, and I liked his songs. And uh, it, it, but it was just you know it started getting a little bit tense because these songs were were being dropped, and obviously if you're writing songs and they're being dropped all the time, it's it's not 
not going to be very good for your confidence. No, God. Um, good things came out of it, obviously, those singles, which we all played on. And, uh, and I think they ended up on a couple of uh, compilation albums as well, you know, things like Lucky Lisp and Michael's Bones, songs like that, with songs I thought were really good at the time. Uh, but that's it, yeah. It's, um, it, it all started falling apart that way, unfortunately, for Stephen. So um, that's when Morrissey started asking me to, to come up with things. And I think he asked Andy as well to come up, you know, with some some song ideas, which I think Andy came up with a, a couple. I'm not sure. I don't think I ever heard them. Yes. But then it all fell apart because of the, uh, the you know, the litigation, not just uh, from myself. It was it was Mike and Andy as well, were bringing their uh, proceedings against the Smiths. Yes, I think so that it was, was all an insane, an insane uh, period, really. But that's why nothing ever happened after that. Yeah, with the four of us. Too weird. Yes, my Which God. Is, yeah, it's, it's a shame. It's a it's a soap opera. I, yeah, yeah. Which is uh, you know, it's it, you know, I think some great things would have happened. You know, I'd, I'd been I'd always been a songwriter. I'd always been writing, but that was the period where I'd started writing, you know, quite a lot again because I was trying to get my own band together at certain certain points around then. And um, it was always a struggle trying to get the right singer or, you know, the right people to join. So uh, I thought, you know, these songs that I was writing anyway, they were, they were going to be good for Morrissey, I, I, I thought. Yes. You know, was, uh, and one of them would have been, you know, one of them was going to be the next single. But obviously I went pear-shaped. <laughs> <laughs> so, so then, because that, that was kind of an interesting period, because that was the kind of, we'd had that sort of, the Seattle grunge kind of period and then a bit of shoegazing yeah. and we'd had the dance scene. So that was kind of yeah. like that kind of, it's kind of a, a weird one because, yeah, the 90s... It's period. It's a very strange period. And then, you know, it slowly develops and you have things like Tricky that start to, you know, like, oh, it's actually, that was more 95. But the, the early yeah. years of Britpop and there was definitely a, yeah. a move back, though I suppose Nevermind was still kind of huge, actually. So, yes, it was quite interesting. But then do you... is So during that period until your your next adventure is with Black Grape, isn't it? Black Grape, yeah. Well, that was the period where, I mean, just before that, obviously, like you, you mentioned, there was the Acid House and the Manchester scene. So it was, um, I think that was, what was that? Nine, in Stone Roses as well, 1989, 1990. And that was basically, I think that was the time I was trying to get bands together again. And I was trying to write a lot of, you know, good backing tracks anyway. I didn't know what I was going to do with them at that point. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but that that whole era for me was it was just it was a bit of it was just a bit depressing for me really that whole Manchester scene I was never into that I thought that that Stone Roses album was great that first Stone Roses album I still think think it sounds great now and some of the Mondays stuff um, but that whole rave thing and you know my sort of I was always in the hacienda up to that point and then when I was going in at that those times it was just really a really horrible atmosphere and you know I'd never been Obviously, everyone's had the times when in, in bands, but I was never big into drugs or anything like that. You know, I'd turn up in those days, and it was just like everyone was completely off the faces, and I'd, you know, maybe I'd be drunk, and, you know, I might be a bit off, off my head a little bit at the time, but it was just, it, it just seemed really not, not to do with music to me. I mean, I can't, I can't bear all that rave culture. 
Yes. And the, you know, the acid house type thing. So that period around then was just, thought there was nothing going on for me at all. But the Mondays were obviously really big at that, at that point uh, until they split up. And, uh, and then Sean asked me to, to play with, uh, with Black Grape because the Mondays had just split up. So uh, he was getting this new band together. This was in a band. I'd, I'd known Sean for years because the Mondays had supported the Colour Field when I played with them in 85. So we, we went back a long way. So we used to go in this bar all the time called Dry. So, um, you know, just one night, me and Sean got talking and saying, you know, fancy starting this new band. And it was Paul, his brother was playing bass as well. And uh, Kermit was involved, obviously. Yes. And uh, and the drummer called Jed Lynch. Actually, it was a drummer from James first. Uh, he was the first drummer, but then a guy called Jed Lynch took over. So it was sort of, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd spoken about it a lot in, in, in these uh, these dry bar nights. And it was it was sort of really hard to get going off the ground because people were all over the place and, you know, it, I suppose people didn't know what was going on. It was, and it wasn't really called Black Grape until sort of later on, really. But we'd, we'd uh, you know, we'd congregate around Sean's house and we'd rehearse a bit in his living room and then we'd go to the pub so uh, we didn't we didn't get too much done, and then there was there was talk about going over to America <clears throat> to to do an album, which was being produced going to be produced um, by Tina Weymouth and um, is it Jerry Harrison? Jerry Harrison, who'd done work with It's Immaterial, I believe. Oh, oh, did it? Yes, Jerry it's did. Immaterial, yeah. Yes. Um, so it was those they were producing because they'd done a bit with uh, the, the happy, Mondays before. Yes, their famous moment. Was it the Barbados one? Yeah, yes, please. The yes. <laughs> infamous recording sessions. That's so that one. was going to, you know, we were going to go over there and I think there was talk of us spending about six months over there. But at this point, I'd had a phone call from Terry Hall again, which was, uh, you know, have you got any songs? You know, nice to speak to you again. How are you doing? Have you got any songs you could send me? So he was, he was looking for a co-writer. He'd been just, um, he'd had a couple of kids by that time and he was just, you know, uh, out of out of the public eye, really. He wasn't doing anything musically for the, the previous sort of four years, something like that. Yeah. So he was ready to get going again. <clears throat> and he was talking of forming a band. So he was looking for a, a writer, uh, you know, a co-writer, because he, he doesn't play anything himself. So I just sent him uh, a couple of backing tracks that obviously I'd, I'd been working on, uh, you know, before that for, uh, for, well, like I say, I didn't know what, what they were for. Subconsciously, I probably knew Terry was going to ring. But I sent them in anyway, and, you know, he liked them. So we, we just got together again and uh, started talking about doing an album. So, you know, I had to I had to tell Sean then, you know, I'm... I'm I'm going to do this because obviously I was writing the songs. That was the main thing for me, you know, and uh, I'd, uh, I'd known Terry for a long time anyway, even though I, I knew the Mondays. Yes, and did that... that the type of thing I wanted to do. And was it such a different experience, well, you know, because obviously you're sort of having to work with so many different people, flipping from, you know, flipping yeah. from one one kind of personality to another. Well, it's like what you, you do as a session musician. I mean... I've never been a session musician. I've never classed myself as a session musician, but 
you know, there are comparisons there because even though it'd be sort of a long gig, really, <laughs> you know, you get a session musician playing with some band for, for years and then they go off and play with someone else. So I suppose it was similar that to that way. Yes. Everyone I played with, I was always in the band. You know, I was never just a, you know, a side guitarist, really. I know. It's kind of... It... So, uh, and I was going to say, did it, you know, when you, when you sort of... Because they're quite sort of big, you know front people you're playing with here aren't they you know from yeah, Morrissey to, to Terry Hall do you think yeah. my god they are so different I mean you know as, <laughs> and the atmosphere between everybody yeah oh it's always completely different yeah yeah I mean everything was different to the Smiths for a start um I suppose it was um yeah I mean Terry was you know similar to Morrissey in, in a way um but then completely different in other ways but it was, um, I mean, I never thought about it at the time. You know, I just put everything into it. You know, I was just really dedicated to what I was doing. Uh, and this wasn't, you know, I was probably, what was it, 25, 25 years old at that point. I'd grown up a lot in that period. Yes, absolutely. I'd gotten rid of, uh, you know, my shyness and come out of my shell a lot, thank God. And, uh, yeah, it's just... Um, I don't know, it just felt like we were partners there. We were partners for a long time as well, really. So it was, we were talking about who to get in the band, you know, we were going to get this band together. It ended up being Terry because, obviously, this, you know, labels don't always want the band. You know, if they've been in famous bands, they'll want the, the singer and the front man. So they won't want the, a band name. Yeah. Oh, they didn't then, anyway. It's changed so much, anyway. But um, his previous label wanted him to sign as a solo singer. Which was, you know, that was okay by me as long as I was, I was writing most of the songs and playing, you know, playing a lot of the stuff and playing all the guitars and, and some bass and arranging and things like that. Yeah. So, uh, but we got this, uh, we got a great band together anyway with Les Pattinson from the Bunnymen and Chris Sharrock. He was in the Lars and, uh, and then he joined Oasis, you know, more recently. He's played with everyone really. So that, that band there, just the four of us at that point, was incredible. Wow. An amazing, amazing band. The real vibe, you know, I'm always saying, and it's, it's true, that it's, you know, our band has got to be more than great players. It's got to be, you know, there's got to be a vibe between you and just a, a, a buzz, you know, and, uh, and there was, I think, between the four of us, definitely. Yes. Terry was a great front man and great singer and, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of charisma. And this was the album Home, wasn't it? Home, yeah. And yeah, so, uh, so that was... Um, we, we were joined by this, this other great pianist called Angie Pollock as well. So she joined us later on and uh, toured with us. But yeah, this was, this was his first album, Home, which has just been re-released again now. Blimey. Which is good news. Absolutely. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this was and this was and it was quite interesting because this was around the time when Britpop started to appear. No, Terry had been obviously around for decades. Yeah. And probably yeah. looked a bit of an old dude. He must have thought, actually I can I must be able to get in here somewhere. I must well, I'm not sure. I mean people have mentioned that these days to me, you know, and I saw something the other day as well, something that said uh, this is what from when Terry Terry Hall went Britpop. Uh, right. It was, uh, it was like a clip of us on something like Jules Holland, and I never thought of it like that at the time. Even though when we were playing there, the, the band opposite us were swayed, and they were lumped in with the the whole Britpop thing. Yes. Um, but even at the time, you know, people had 
be mentioning this Britpop thing, and I never got it, and Terry didn't either. It was like, you know what? what why are people talking about Britpop? And there were just all these sort of British guitar bands around, really. I get, yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, everyone you got, know, you know, it was a bit like the C, it was a bit like the C86 world, wasn't it? I mean, anybody yeah. around that time who yeah. looked the part. I suppose it's easier these days because people can, can give it a name and then people will go, yeah, oh yeah, I remember that era. It was suede and blur and menswear and, you know, well, bands with guitars, really. Yes, and sleeper. So, uh, so yeah. and yeah. how did, um, so did the Terry Hall experience last for long? Was it mostly for that one album? Sorry, the te- with Terry Hall, did that last beyond that one album, or did you um, keep with him for no, a while? No, we did another one. Um, we did an album called Laugh a couple of years later. Uh, so between that, me and Terry were writing again, and uh, Ian Brody, who produced the first album, had got his own band going again, The Lightning Seeds, which he'd always done just on record. You know, he'd never tour. So I think he started touring. So we produced this next one ourselves, uh, me and Terry. And uh, there was a, you know, a great engineer called Chenzo. So we, we recorded it on Pete Townsend's barge, a lot of it. You know, some of it you know, in, other, in other places, but most of it on Pete Townsend's barge, which was, uh, which was fantastic, really. Wow, that must be, a big, off the top. must be a big barge. It was, yeah. It wasn't too big. I mean, he wasn't luxurious. It was a bit, you know, he wasn't he wasn't scruffy or anything like that. But there's this big desk in there, and it was comfortable, comfortable. You know, the live room was quite small, but it was it was great to be on there. You know, you'd be just on this barge on the Thames, and you'd just be away from everyone. Even though it was it was attached, moored, right where a studio that the Cocteau Twins used to own. So we'd occasionally go in there and do some guitars and do a bit of. Terry's vocals in there, but most of the time we'd be on the barge, and it was just you know we just had a great laugh really doing it, and we got all this work done anyway. So uh, you know we had all these songs. I think we had about fourteen songs, got them down to can't remember how many were on the album, maybe ten or eleven. And uh, you know I think it sounds really good. Though. I think it sounds better than the first album. Yes. You know, definitely, my guitars sound a lot better. It's some of the, the first album, the guitar sounds drive me a little bit mad. You know, it's uh, just, an, I mean, don't really listen to it that much or what I've done in the past, but when I have heard it, I just think, God, why did you, why did you settle for that guitar sound? And you know, the ones on the second album I'm much happier with. Yes, absolutely. So then after that, because that's, that's the last, is that the last <coughs> time you work with Terry Hall? Uh, yeah, in the professional capacity, I suppose you could say. Um, in the next few years, we'd, we'd still do bits of writing um, because his deal ended after that album. Uh, we had a couple of singles off that. Uh, so his, his deal ended, so he was out of a deal. So we'd still, we'd still get together. He'd come up, up here to my house and he'd, he'd stay over for a few nights and we'd do bits of writing, go out and just enjoy ourselves, really, and, and come back and do a bit more writing. So the type of thing that we'd always done so we were getting things ready as well for when he'd, he'd get his next deal. Um, and it wasn't too easy, really. You know, thing, deals weren't easy to get at that, at that time. No. As, as the same as now. Yes. So, um, you know, it was, we, were still, we were still mates and we were still doing these, these things, this writing stuff. But it was, uh, you know, obviously, if, you've not got, if it's not your job doing it then, 
you've not got an advance to, to pay for things. You know, it's um, it's it's not not going to feel like you, you're going to put everything into it really. So I think he'd uh, you know he'd do often go off and do bits and pieces, and I'd, I can't remember what I was doing at the time. I think I was I don't remember was at college doing a bit of music at college, something like that. Yes. Um, but yeah, it's. Uh, and was that? And and since no. then, have you been, you know, like adding, you know, like touring with bands or writing with other people? Has it been just well, kind of? Yeah, I mean, around, just after that, actually, it was I, I played with I played with a couple of other singer songwriters. Um, nothing that got off the ground. Uh, I played with um, I toured with Alison Maye for a while. Uh, we did British and European tours then. <clears throat> so that was. Loved that, loved doing that. Um, and then that was it for a while. But since then, it's been writing. I mean, t- uh, to be honest, I've been writing a lot for film and TV most of the time. I think from about 98, when I first started writing for uh, for Granada up here, that was one of the first jobs. So uh, that's where my uh, original sort of influences come in again. Because I always knew after bands, this is what I want to do. I want to, you know... <laughs> I thought, like everyone else who's a composer, you know, you want to write film scores, you want to work for Hollywood, you know, work on Hollywood films. I thought, oh, I'll, I'll do that when, uh, you know, my guitar playing career winds down. Yes. And does you know, it... And it's, uh, obviously, I thought, well, you know, it's, it must be as easy as playing the guitar, really. But, um, but obviously, you know, it's not, it's not the case. It's as easy as being number one tennis player in the world. So, so it's... Uh, but I always knew, you know, that's, that's what I wanted to do anyway, and my heart was going out of playing in bands. This was probably... <clears throat> um, when I'd stopped playing with Terry after that second album and with, you know, the things of Peter out, like I mentioned, it was... Uh, that was what I wanted to concentrate on, really, and studying constantly, really, and making sure I was ready for... You know, if I did get a bit of luck and, uh, you know, be asked to do a film score, then I'll be ready because I wanted to be able to do do the job right yeah absolutely those sort of last few years anyway i'd been getting a little bit bored of playing in bands and i thought you know it's you know i was getting older and it's uh, you know people think it's it's not very respectable to be in a band when you're older really uh unless you're really successful you know you're playing in successful bands again so i was i'd wound that down really like i say i think the alison moye stuff was one of the last things i did uh touring wise so then I'd sort of, after that, I'd turn my back on it and just, you know, made a sort of beeline for, for getting known in uh, in writing soundtracks and music for TV. Yes. So I was just, I just made sure I concentrated on that fully. And uh, obviously in the back of my mind all the time, there was, you know, if a band asks me again to play guitar, I'll think about it. And, uh, or whoever it'd be, if it's someone like Paul McCartney or or Bowie or someone like that, then you, you're not going to turn something like that down. They never rang up, so, you know, I'll... Uh, I, I just... <laughs> I just, I just uh, you know, concentrated fully, like I say, on uh, on doing this. And uh, <clears throat> and I was lucky, you know, I was able to get my foot in the door with a few producers, and it just spiralled from there, sort of snowballed from there. Yes. Um, up until top today, which I'm, you know, I'm still doing it, but... I'm back in a band again. I'm not sure if you know, David, but I'm playing in a band again. Well, I saw <laughs> this, the Alan White. Alan band. White, yeah. Um, with yeah. with um, a Bizarrely, and you must 
kind of laugh slightly that it features quite a few people who've obviously played with Morrissey. Yeah. Well, that was the uh, yeah, that was the original idea. I mean, there's there's Alan Wayu obviously took over. Um, obviously, me, Mike, and Andy were Morrissey's first band, I suppose. Even though we only played one gig, but we did that touring, and and that was his first band. Uh, when that sort of fell apart and he, he regrouped again, then Alan White and uh, this this band that he, he built around him was uh, like Gary Day on bass, Spencer Cobrin on drums, and then Boz Bora. Yes. So Alan and Boz were his main two songwriters then, uh, which is, you know, a lot of people say that was his, his best ever band, really. And I've been in touch with Alan and Gary for, you know, for years. And we just—they're just such great guys. I, I just feel like they're, they're mates of mine. And you know, I love what Alan does anyway. He's a great songwriter. I think he's a great singer as well. And they're just—just just great people, just brilliant people. So we were—we've been—we um, were speaking about it earlier this year, and uh, we decided this is what we're going to do. You know, the first gigs were going to be in LA, and uh, things were going to start moving. And then this craziness hit with the coronavirus. Yes. It just went nuts as soon as we uh, started uh, planning things. I know, it's sort of... But, Which but, isn't a bad thing, you know, it's just been put back until next year. Yeah, so is it Which the case then? Because you were sort of like with all your soundtrack and you're obviously thinking oh, this is this is quite a nice steady steady-ish kind of uh, profession creatively, which is never going to be that yeah. steady, is it? Um, but then, you know, the the so did it... Surprise you when you think, oh my god, I've got to tell my wife we're we're actually I'm going to be in a band again. Um, yeah, a little bit. I mean, I spoke to her about it because you know it's it's same as anyone my age or or even when you've done a few things, it's you know being in a band can really drive you insane. <laughs> you know, and when you've been in about when you've played with about forty of them, like I have, it's, it can drive you even more insane. You know, obviously it's it's amazing an amazing life but you know you do have to put up with a lot of nonsense yes. well along the years so partly because of that and partly because i'd sort of grown out of it in a little bit uh, in a small way not playing guitar or music but you know touring band touring around sort of america or europe or you know playing in places and you know i'd sort of lost you know sort of lost heart with it really falling out of love with with doing all that side of it I always still love playing in the studio. So I said, after that, I said to myself, you know, I'm not really, I'm not really interested in playing with people anymore. You know, I'm just, I love, I love working on my own. And as close as you can get to that is being a composer, whether that's classical music or, or writing for film and TV or any media, really. And you don't, you know, obviously you don't work on your own because you're employed by people and you work for people. Yes. You know, your producers, your boss. So uh, I always knew that, but at the same time, you know, musically, you know, you can you can work pretty much, you know, I can, I can work by myself and I'm confident in what I do. Apart from singing or writing lyrics, you know, they're the only things that I, I can do. Um, everything else, I'm pretty confident, I'm really confident in, uh, in everything else. So I'm just really happy being able to get everything done that way. So, but, you know, it's, I didn't think when Alan got in touch with me, he'd, he'd been speaking to uh, to Gary and uh, Spencer about it, you know, and he wanted to give it a big push again because he's sort of been treading water a little bit. Um, 
But, you know, I, I didn't think too much about it, really, because, you know, too, too long about it before I said, yeah. Yes. Because it, it just felt like a natural thing to do. Having spoken to Gary and, and Alan anyway, over this time, it's, it's, I, I knew I'd get on with them. You know, obviously, we've, we've not met up this year because, because of all, we can't travel. And, uh, I, I, you know, I, I knew I'd heard what, he's re- what he'd written. I'd, I'd heard the songs he's written with Morrissey. I'd heard his solo stuff. And I like what he does. I like his guitar playing. You know, I knew, I sort of knew everything about them, really, because I, at the time I'd followed what they were doing in the early 90s. And uh, I thought, yeah, you know, why not? It could, it could be really enjoyable. You know, obviously, no one's doing anything for free, so it's got to be financially viable. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, you know, I think, the, you know, the four of us, we're all in different places. One's in New York, one's in L.A. I'm in Manchester, and, and Gary's in, uh, in near Bedford. So just, you know, the sort of logistical part is, is going to be a little bit tough. But I think it's, uh, it's all doable. All doable, and I think it's you know from next year we're going to have some some dates uh, set up really. And because you've been, and because you've been, and because you've been sort of creatively producing and and and, uh, developing things, do you sort of? Because it's one of those kind of things. I mean, being a creative artist. um, By the way, I'm not a creative artist, but you are a creative artist. Is it? You know, when you you know coming up with the ideas or coming up with something that you think that's really amazing. Does it ever? Yeah. Is it a bit scary sometimes when you think, Jesus, yeah. actually today, oh, well, not just today. You know, I'm not really feeling much, and it hasn't really happened for the last couple of weeks. You know, does that Definitely. that kind of yeah. moment often come up and think, Christ, how am I going to get through this next blockage? Well, or, yeah, you think, oh, have I, am I any good? You know, can you? How have you written stuff in the past that's been good? Or, you know, that I think has been good, and hopefully other people do as well. But there's two part two sides to that, really, or two parts to it. I mean, apart from you know starting to play with with Alan again and carrying on my writing for film and TV, I'm I'm also writing songs with people all over the world as well all the time. So I'm doing that pretty much every day. And these days, obviously, you know, no one's travelling up here to to write with me in the studio. So we're doing it a lot by email. So I'm producing as well, and it's it's you know it's all over the world. It's Australia and South Africa and India collaborating with all these different artists so doing that is it's not like that like you just mentioned because it's not too much of a there are not really any deadlines i mean there there are sometimes deadlines you know by people in maybe china that want a song by you know the 13th of of this month most of the time though it's it's quite easy going you know we're passing ideas with us and you know it's getting these songs going so if you don't come up with an idea that's great one day then you know, I've learned to, to concentrate on something else that isn't so demanding, really, that's coming up with some perfect melody or a great chord progression or something or some great drum rhythm. You know, if, you can't, if, if you're not inspired, you can turn off for a bit and do something else, like clean up some things, and then maybe the next day <clears throat> you'll feel a bit more inspired. Yes. So you can do that when you're writing songs and, you know, if people are asking you for something like, you know, we're signed to publishers as well, so publishers ask us for certain songs. So um, you sometimes get a deadline. If you have got a deadline, then you've got to work to that. So it's easier writing songs <clears throat> that way. But if I'm writing for film and TV, it, you know the deadlines can be really intense that way. So that's where it gets scary, because you can't you you know you can't. Some people write can only write when they're inspired. 
Yes. And I used to be like that until I got much experience, really. So you can't you can't wait if you've got a deadline, say for two days' time or tomorrow. Sometimes you know people from adverts will ring you up and say we want something. They might need it by tomorrow dinner time. So sometimes <laughs> you've got to be up all night, and if you're not inspired or you're uh, you know you're falling apart mentally, you're not going to be able to write anything. Or what you do write, if you're just forcing it out, it'll probably be rubbish anyway. So you'll send it them, and they'll probably never get in touch with you again. So I've learned. <laughs> I've learned over the years, you know, to if you're not inspired, you know, just rely on your technique, really. I mean, I've, like I say, I've studied for years and years, even since school, really, the, the sort of theoretical side of music. So I, I pretty much, I think, I know, I know what I'm doing. Sometimes it's great. You can just strap on a guitar and be inspired and play some great stuff and be inspired that way. But if you're not, you know, you've still got to get the job done. So you, you've got to sit down at the piano and, and come up with something great. Or even if it's not great, you've got to, uh, you, you've got to um, make people think it sounds great. Yes. Whether that's sonically or, or something that's, that's quite clever or whether it's just for something like an advert for shoes, that'll just fit in with it. <clears throat> yeah, fit in with what they're saying or what you're seeing. Um, but a lot of the time as well, people don't know what they're looking for. So you've just got to try and guess, really, and try and make them happy that way. So that is the, that's, you know, that, that can be scary. And especially if it's writing for a film as well. I've done two, two feature films over the last two years. <clears throat> and there are a lot of people, you know, waiting for you to come up with some great stuff. And thankfully, I'd, uh, I'd done it, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd pleased everyone. But you don't have much time on, on films, you know. It's, uh, you, might, you might have to do sort of 40... Well, these films that I did, there's about 50 minutes of music in each one, which is a lot of music, you know, for a, a one-and-a-half-hour film. Blimey. So yes. uh, to, to write that much music in maybe three, four weeks, and you've got to start from scratch as well, that can be, you know, that can be sort of hair-raising. I could imagine. You know, you, you've got to do it. You can't fall apart. Well, you can fall apart, but you won't, you know, like I say, if you if you start screaming and uh, having tantrums and everything and say, you can't do it, you, you know, I need more time and all that. You won't last long. So I've learned to uh, to work within the, you know, the time constraints, really. Yeah, <coughs> it's, 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 it's uh, tricky. And just and almost lastly, I mean, did you know, when you sort of work with somebody like Alan and with this new band, does that kind yeah. of feel like kind of a fresh slate that, the you know, you just think actually this is quite emotionally easy i'm not having to watch my back i'm not having to feel like oh there's a bit of a weird something a bit weird actually. it just feels really fresh yeah i know alan's had some songs for a while and he's been like i say he's been doing his solo career for a while um but he's looking at this as a new band obviously it's, it's under his name under alan white i mean we'll all be writing together anyway once we we all get together but at the moment they're alan's songs so we're recording with each other at the moment. You know, we're all flying our, our parts over to LA, where Alan uh, Alan mixes them. So it's it is it's like you know he wants it to be a fresh band, even though he's known Spencer and Gary for you know for years and years. You know, yes. for theirs. Uh, I'm sort of the new, the new guy with them, but it does it, it feels like a new band, a fresh band, and you know I speak to them all the time. You know, pretty much constantly really so it's uh we just respect each other what everyone can play you know everyone's really good players so uh it's it's 
it is it's, it's quite easy and obviously you don't want what, what you're doing you don't want everything to be easy but it's just one of those things where Alan will send send a song over to me with maybe just acoustic guitar and and ask me to come up with some parts so uh, you know I'm, I'm pretty much inspired every time he sends me something so I'll put my ideas down and send them back over to him Gary does the same <clears throat> and it's um everyone's just really happy at the moment doing that. You know, there'll be some suggestions with a mix, maybe, you know, turn that down a little bit or a bit more bass on that or whatever. But it's, uh, I just feel like, you know, once we do start properly and we're all together in the studio, it's it's just going to go swimmingly. God, that's fantastic, actually. I think so. And it... we're all, you know, we can't wait to play live because it's going to be, it's going to be fantastic. Obviously, we're going to be playing some of Alan's songs he wrote for Morrissey because there's some great songs there, and it's Alan's legacy. So, uh, you know, I think people are, the people that are going to come and see it are, are going to love it. Yes. You know, I, I, love, I love what Alan does anyway. Actually, has Alan got a good voice? He has. He's got a really good voice. I'm yeah, not. and he can take off all these different, <laughs> different people. He's always, he's always doing impressions down the line of all these different singers we've both known. And it just sounds identical, really. Oh, that's even, that's even better. I mean, you'll definitely get an audience, won't you, on that? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's quite handy. Yes. So it's, um, I mean, it's, it's great. You know, it's just, it's just going to, you know, we can just tell it's going to be a lot of fun at the same time as, uh, you know, hopefully other people are enjoying it. I'm sure. Yeah. Christ, we'll be desperate soon. We'll be desperate to go. It'll be great. It'll be... Yeah, so, you know, I'll keep you up to date with what's happening with that. Yeah, and just last... craziness goes. I know. So, and just lastly, I mean, if you were able to tell your, you know, you could have said something to your 18-year-old self starting out, you know, what you've learned over the decades. I was wondering if there was a few things that you'd just, like, just whisper in their ear as they were about to go in the yeah. studio or on stage, and you thought, oh, just a few little things just to watch out for. <laughs> and, well, uh, I wouldn't say anything that, that definitely is, but I don't think anything musically. I think my sort of... You know, my learning curve has been just right for me. You know, I didn't, you know, I picked up things all along the way, um, mainly as, as I was a teenager from mainly playing with Roddy Frame and, and then, you know, with Johnny Marr later on, I learned a lot there. And then being in the studio with, uh, with other people as the years went down and, and it, I picked up little, a little and a lot really from, from so many different people. But I think... Personality-wise, I'd just I'd say to myself, just don't be so sensitive, really, and and also come out of your shell when you were, you know, I know I was so young, but um, just don't be so shy, and you know, just force yourself out there, and don't be such a, you know, a shy kid. Yes. You know what you're going to lose. You know, it's like being shy and being quiet, or sitting in a corner or something like that. I was occasionally like that. Um, That's not going to do you any good. Really, but mainly don't you know? Don't don't be so sensitive by uh, some of the things that people say to you along the years, or some of the people you know, some of the things that people do, because you just learn that people are like that in general anyway. You know, there's good and bad really in everyone. You know, everyone's got good sides and bad sides. So don't you know, if you see someone's bad side, just don't take it to heart. Yeah. Have you I, been? You know, a... I tell myself things like that all the time, but. I, Try not, I try not to listen. Yes. You no, know, I try. I try to listen, but it's the same as everything. You know, you know, people in bands are no different to, to people on the street or to friends. You yes. know, there's, there's good and bad everywhere, really. I know. It I doesn't know. mean you have to take it. So, you know, it's uh, 
you know, if you're if you're a bricklayer or a plumber or something, and you you don't get on with your boss, you can always leave. You know, no, it's not that easy, but it's like, you know, it's uh, you know, you don't have to stick with it really. But the the worst thing is is just to to maybe cause a scene or or go in a sulk, or uh, you know, or take it to heart. I think that's a lot worse. So uh, you know, just be sort of straightforward really with people. I think that's what I'd say. Yeah. And I think I have most of the time, but you know, there has been times where. When I was younger, you know, I, I, if something that's something had happened that I didn't like, I'd, I'd go off and and sulk for a bit. You know, I hold my hands up there, not too much really, and I think, you know, it was always valid really, but you can handle it in a in a more mature way. I know it's tricky when you're young. Um, have you have you sort of made peace with a lot of those kind of things from the past? You know, do you feel? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, yeah, definitely. There's a, you know, there's a lot of water under under the bridge, and also you can't, you can't, you know, I've fallen out with people, obviously, you know, some some famous people, um, but it's, you know, you fall out with people, you know, for a reason. There's always been a reason behind it. Something that might be, it might be something really stupid or something, you know, some, something that's quite serious, really. But no, it's like, you know, you can be bitter for a while, and. I've, you know, I've, I've been bitter a couple of times when I've done interviews and, and thought I've put that view across, but that's, um, you know, it's, it's, I don't I don't think like that at all. You know, I've, I've grown up a lot, really, from thinking like that. It's no, it's no good to be carrying that around with you. Yes. You know, because you can't, cheat, change, you can't change people's viewpoints anyway. People think, believe what they want to believe, you know, whether they're right or they're wrong. And it's like, I know, I know myself, and I'm happy with myself, and... and who I am, you know, like I say, apart from, you know, handling things a little bit differently, I'm, I'm, I know I'm a good person and, uh, you know, there's nothing I regret really, apart from little daft things, you know, which uh, everyone, you know, everyone does. Yes. Uh, so, um, so yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, well, things annoy you and things annoyed me recently as well, you know, with people you, you've been in bands with, but, you know, you, you brush it off really. You know, some people don't, so can't brush it off, and they'll they'll be, uh, you know, they'll constantly think about it. But I'm just, you know, I've moved on, moved on a long time ago from, from people I'd fallen out with, and you know, I just life's too short for all that stuff. Well, <clears throat> if, you, if you fall out with a mate of yours, it's like, you know, it's sometimes you think, you know, I've got, I've got to move on. You know, it's, uh, it's not, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. No. It's not good. It's it, no. it, it, it's kind it of doesn't do anyone any good, especially yourself. Yes, and you, you yeah, know, that's that's the worst thing. So it's always good to. Uh, I know, I know. It's not good, especially <laughs> when you find your shoulders are slightly creeping up past your ears. Oh. <laughs> not, not a not a good thing. But look, oh well, look, this yeah. has been this has been fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much for giving me the time for You're your welcome, David. time. Um, it's been amazing, and um, I'm just glad that you've got your. You know, the, oh, it sounds like the last five years have been, you know, pretty amazing. And um, your sort of latest musical adventure, which is going to be oh, fascinating. I hope it goes yeah, really yeah. well. And um, hopefully you'll do some dates in the UK one day, actually. Yeah, well, we're talking about spring at the moment, next spring. Yes. So, uh, so I'll, I'll let you know when, when there's some, some firm dates. Oh, that would be, um, be magic. Yeah. So I think, uh, I mean, you're in Norfolk, aren't you? We are. We are so, uh, Norwich. Uh, Norwich, yeah. Yes. So but I'll, it's, I'll, um, I'll find out 
But yeah, thank, thanks a lot. I mean, it's really nice speaking to you as well. Yeah, well, no, it's been Media fantastic. Well, I hope it's um, yes. I just hope it goes really well for the next the next phase of your oh, life. Thanks. But um, yeah, well, take Great. care there, and um, yeah, and I'll keep in touch. But thanks a lot okay. for this. No, you're welcome, David. Cheers. Nice speaking to you. Okay, Bye. take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. There you go. How to end a conversation really sharply. I know I should get better at that, but um, I don't know. I'm a very apologetic sort of person. So look, that was a big thank you to Craig Gannon um, for giving me the time for that interview. This has been David Eastall. If you want to contact me <laughs> for some random reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, all these interviews have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Pod. Been so there you go. Check it out. Sorry, I'm shouting now, aren't I? It's late. I'm going to bed. Anyway, have a great week. <laughs>